Public Broadcasting. This is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Georgia, we on the grind in Georgia. All the time, it ain't nothing on my mind, but Georgia, we ain't playing with you. This month, we're celebrating some of Georgia's most incredible musicians and music from country to rock and roll to hip hop. And you're listening to one of the Atlanta scene's biggest music and film stars, Ludacris. This fall, Georgia State University College of Law is offering The Legal Life of Ludacris. It's a course examining the strategic legal decisions and contracts that supported his career as a rapper, an actor, a philanthropist, and now restaurateur. It is the brainchild of Mo Ivory. She's the head of the school's Entertainment, Sports, and Media Law Initiative, also a longtime radio personality, political consultant, attorney, and that's Professor Ivory to you, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Now, you worked with Ludacris for, for some time. Why study his legal life for this course? Yeah, so I actually never um, worked with him, but had an opportunity to uh, interview him many times. Uh-huh. And I always admired uh, Ludacris. And he was a um, musician that always showed up on time for interviews. He has always been so well-spoken. I have a relationship with his mother. And so I understand the background and the way he was raised. And I just thought he also went to Georgia State University for two years in the School of Music studying um, music business management. And so I thought he would just be the perfect, um, you know, career to follow and to give our students something brand new to look forward to in this program. And he has had such a career, as you mentioned, all of the things. So there were many contracts that we could look at um, in that in that space of his career, 20 plus years. The class is now full. Do you think it would have been if it was called contract law for entertainers? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, actually, let me say that I went before we I created this curriculum that is now uh, a certificate program. We are the only law school in Georgia that has a certificate program majoring in entertainment, sports and media. Uh, I was just teaching entertainment law and that class would fill up very quickly. And it was just because of the thirst that our students have for this uh, practice area that has sort of taken our city over. There's not a day you really don't come to Georgia State Law School, which is right there on Park Place in the middle of downtown Atlanta, that there's not a movie being shot or some construction going on for a production set. And so we um, we just felt the dean went. Wendy Hensel at the time, who's now the provost, hired me to address that. And so that's what we wanted to do with this program. Really, we're so strategically and geographically in a place where we should be addressing this boom in Atlanta. And so that's what we did. That's, you know, that's the knock we often hear. There are so many entertainers, so many productions being done here in Georgia. But the knock is that the, the work may be done here, but the decisions are made elsewhere. Do you, are you trying to bring the decisions and those actual deals here? To Absolutely. Georgia? That is exactly the critical reason why this uh, education and this curriculum is so important, because a lot of the decisions and let me just break that down a little bit. A lot of the decisions, yes, are made in L.A. or maybe in New York, but a lot of the work is still done here. And even the attorneys in L.A. still need to have a Georgia based attorney to do some some of that work. And so more um, more and more we see that need from studios that have come and set up here in Atlanta. And so we're preparing our students, even if a student who goes to Georgia State College of Law and, and comes out with this certificate goes to L.A. for a couple of years to work, it makes it um, better for them to come back to Atlanta with the skill sets that they have. But they will not ever get that position in L.A. if they don't have a basis of understanding in this practice area specifically. So that's 
that's what we're giving them. And I want my students to go anywhere. I want them to go, you know, overseas. I want them to go to Canada. I want them to go anywhere that they'll be able to practice in this area that they love. Who is taking this course? Is it law students? Is it people who are interested in the music business themselves? Maybe aspiring artists? Sure. It's just law students. Um, I have, like you said, I have 31 students this semester in the class. But what the initiative does is we also do events to just exactly address the other communities that want this information. So, so many people have been wonderful to embrace the program. So, uh, Brennan Strickler, who is, um, the director of the Creative Music Industries Institute, Media Institute, Industries Institute, known as CMII at Georgia State University. We're putting a program together on November 16th that will do just that. And we're going to do a deep dive into content and the protection of content. So if you're a filmmaker and you you know wrote a, a script and now you don't know what to do with it, how to protect it, make sure somebody doesn't walk off with your idea, we're going to address that at that event. And that event will be open to everybody. So this is the first ever university-level initiative of this kind. Why do you think it's taken so long, Mo? Did it just take to you to come on in and say, we winning, we need to do this? Of course, but no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think that, it, you know, I think everything happens when um, people come together and they all at the same time have the same idea and the willingness to move forward with it. Um, dean Wendy Hensel, who I said, Provost Wendy Hensel, she was uh, just the kind of dean at the law school that really wanted to see some different things and really gave me the space to do that. She wasn't um, restrictive and she wasn't holding me back from what I wanted to do. And so she sort of let me go last year and I wrote the curriculum. I and She advised me on it and we were able to get that done. So I think it just takes the right people, the right connections. You know, she hired me and I've been working in Atlanta in this community for a long time. So it was easy for me to get those connections and people, you know, when I brought this to Ludacris and I asked him to come to the law school to speak, he was absolutely, I mean, there was no, I'm too busy. I can't do that. He was absolutely. And he came and it wasn't a whole big deal. He drove himself. You know, I said, this is, you know, a state school. Um, so we, we don't have, you know, maybe I could do Uber black on my, um, Uber app, but, um, he's like, no, 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 no worries at all. I'm just going to drive myself. And he came and all he wanted was, you know, a cup of tea and we had our plastic cups for a cup of tea and we gave it to him. And that was all it really was. And and I think that more and more artists feel the um, the pull to, you know, branch into different areas and to do things as they look at their legacy. Right. If they mm. look at what they want to do after they've sort of done everything, what's next? And he's he was just the perfect person to do it. And so I, it was really not that difficult to get the, the buy in from him. My guest is attorney GSU Entertainment Law Professor Mo Ivory, teaching a course on entertainment law this semester while looking at the legal life of Ludacris. You can join the conversation. You can tweet us. You can tell us your favorite Ludacris song using the GPB loves music hashtag. We're also at OST talk on Twitter. So let's dive in a little bit about how far this course goes back in your curriculum for this particular course and what kind of decisions Ludacris made. Of course, Chris Bridges, he was an intern, a DJ at Hot 97 yeah. as Chris Lova Lova. Yes, he was. <laughs> a DJ at Freaknik and then founded his own record label, Disturbing the Peace. It was a Def Jam imprint. 
now actor, cognac company. Um, so was he particularly smart at law at figuring these things out or did he have good advice? Where, where, how do you place that? Yeah, so, you know, we started the first class off talking to his mother and she was a guest speaker in our first class. We wanted to really understand how he was raised to think about business and what he was like in his younger years. And he's always been um, business minded. His mother was a vice president at, uh, Fannie, at Freddie Mac and she always uh, taught him to really save, set his goals, to, you know, really look at the goals. She would have him write them down, not just discuss them, but write them down. And then they would go back and they would look at the goals. And he always was doing odd, you know, jobs and things that he could uh, do because he wanted to be something. And so that drive is really the beginning of what we learned about him. And so we moved into um, his job as an intern um, at 97.5. And we had Ryan Cameron, who is also a radio personality, come and talk about him becoming an intern and then getting a spot on 97.5 and having his own show. And we examined a radio talent agreement. And we really looked at, you know, what it, what were the things that, um, Ludacris was different than other talents. And we found that he used to save all of his money when he would do spots and, um, and he would save that money in order to go into the studio. So he was, always thinking that he would use his radio career to promote his own music at some point. So he was actually Chris Lava Lava and Ludacris at the same time, performing at night as Ludacris and being on the air as Chris Lava Lava. So we went through a radio talent agreement and we broke that all apart and talked about the restrictions that that would have being two sort of entities at one time and, and the thing the things that he does on the radio and who owns that and all that. And it was a very, very interesting conversation. Our next class, we had him his managers come in and talk to us about the, when they began their management uh, relationship. And we went through a management agreement to find out that they never actually signed a management agreement. No but kidding. that, yes, that for 20 plus years, they've been working on a handshake. Wow. Yeah. So it was very interesting to find that out. Well, that's so interesting that you say that because, you know, a lot of artists emerge onto the scene with, you know, big records. Look at little Nas X right yeah, now, right, right? right? Who may know the music scene, but not necessarily the law. And there are so many stories of, you know, the old blues artists and R&B artists and soul and funk artists who are making records maybe 50s, 60s, 70s on a handshake who never got their royalties, who died penniless. Many of them African-American artists, you know, because of the nature of the business and who was in power. The idea is this... They're better prepared today, but what are some big takeaways on how to do it right? Yeah, so it was ironic that as Ludacris's managers were telling us that they work on a handshake, they were also saying never do that. Yeah. Um, and so when we asked uh, Jeff Dixon, one of his managers, who, what, what's the biggest thing you would do differently, you know, as you move forward, or what's one of the pieces of advice you would give? And he said that absolutely find the best entertainment lawyer that you can and never do anything without a contract. And so that was like really ironic. But he did, you know, say that the the relationship with Ludacris is obviously atypical. It is, it is not what you would normally find. So, um, you know, the takeaway is that you need to understand the business. One thing I think that Ludacris did early on was understand how this business works rather than just be enamored by being an artist. He knew very early on that records needed to be played on the radio. So he situated himself that he could be on the radio and he could have access to playing his records. He could have access to other DJs. And that's how he built his career when he put his first album out. So I think the takeaway is that 
to watch the things that he did, which many artists do not do. They He saved his money, something artists typically don't do when they are beginning. Um, he always had advice, something artists typically don't do in the beginning. He hired a business manager the first, you know, in the very early, early days to manage his money instead of begin to go on these wild shopping sprees and, and, and just buying everything. And so I think that he just is a model of sort of what you would exactly do on the business side of things to end up having the kind of longevity that he's had. Yeah, and plus a lot of talent to yeah, go along plus, with oh, it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the Legal Life of Ludacris offers this certificate, as you mentioned, to students upon completion. So what kind of employment could they pursue after graduation? Sure. So, you know, I think what the certificate program does is just say, I know a little bit more about this area than most law students. The real truth is when you graduate from law school, you know about the law, but you do not know how to practice law. And so the practice of law happens in those first couple of years. What I try to do in my class is actually give them some practical applications of the law so when they come out they understand it last night we did um, a mock negotiation and two students uh, played the lawyers for the manager and the lawyer for the artist and I allowed them to um, negotiate different points of the agreement and I would stop them and I would you know point things out that were important for them to learn so I hope that if any of the students want to go into law firms that have a particular um, practice area that's entertainment, they'll have a leg up from everybody else because these terms won't be new to them. They will at least have seen them in my class. They will know how they work in practical application, and I think that will give them a leg up. A lot of times these super popular courses spread like wildfire. Have you had other interests from other law universities or law schools about doing this course? Yeah, well, I, I have um, every week I have a bunch of students and folks from the outside that sit outside my classroom hoping they can come in and audit the class. <laughs> and so I let as many as can, um, you know, in the classroom, but it's a pretty full classroom. So um, I can't let as many people in. But yeah, I've had invitations to come speak at all of the law schools about the program that I'm doing. Um, but, you know, we really are honing it and, you know, figuring it all out at Georgia State, how it works. And I get so much interest from people to come in and speak. So I kind of am keeping it at Georgia State. Mo Ivory, thank you so much. Thank you. Spreading the gospel of ludicrous, among other things, about doing it right as a music entertainment. She's an attorney and entertainment law professor. She's in charge of the initiative for entertainment, media and sports at Georgia State University. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought after the break. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Rural America is often painted in broad strokes. Yes, America's small towns have been hard hit by economic and population decline as more and more Americans flock to urban and suburban areas. And yes, unemployment and the opioid crisis have been rough on many small financially strapped communities. Well, a new Smithsonian exhibit called Crossroads, Change in Rural America aims to add some dimension to those images and generate conversations about rural history, identity, and visions for the future. Localized exhibitions are traveling across America with initial stops in Moscow, Idaho, and Thomaston, Georgia. Lori Smith is president of the Thomaston Upson Chamber of Commerce and project coordinator for the local show in Thomaston. Lori, welcome. Good morning. How are you? Very well. Glad to talk with you. And Robbie Davis is also with us. He's project, project director for the Smithsonian's Museum on Main Street. That's the traveling exhibition service, which helped produce Crossroads and joins us from Washington. Robbie, thank you for being here. Good morning. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, I want to start with you because you're a big picture here. You've worked on a number of traveling shows under the Smithsonian's Museum on Main Street umbrella. Why the focus on rural America now? 
Well, Rural America is our constituency with Museum on Main Street. It's a program designed for rural communities. Our goal for our 25 years of existence has been to provide a series of tools, exhibitions, uh, story collection projects, you name it, things that help give those communities a platform for uh, those those cultural organizations a platform for engaging with their communities. So it's it's our it's it's our goal. It's it's the whole reason that we exist. So Crossroads is is an exhibition that really we found as we started to develop it was kind of the capstone for that 25 years of learning from the people who have been who have been our constituents, who have been our partners in going across the country and uh, talking about life in, in rural places in the United States. So it's a natural to kind of turn the exhibition around on them to some extent and say, okay, here's an opportunity to kind of take what you know take what's important about your community, and then really engage your visitors in thinking about what comes next. And that is the goal of Crossroads. It's to create that conversation. Uh, our uh, The thing that we ask all of the host organizations to do is to explore their past, dig deep, um, look at what it means to live in your community, look at where, and then start asking people, where's our town going? Mm-hmm. Where where will we be in five years, 10, 15, 20? Um, and uh, uh, we've provided some tools in that to kind of help engage um, our our host organizations work at the state level with Georgia Humanities, which is just a brilliant facilitator and does a great job of engaging communities all over the state. So from the start, communities are paired with someone who's going to help them have those conversations and have them in a constructive manner. Uh, so it's really wonderful to see all of the great things that happen. Um, and yes, take what happens with Crossroads and then multiply it by 1,600. That's mm-hmm the number of communities we've served over 25 years. And it's it's really remarkable to see the breadth of culture in rural communities uh, and the depth with which they can engage um, at the local level. It's inspiring. Yeah, well, let's talk about that on the local level. Lori, you're one of the host communities as part of having Crossroads in Thomaston. You had to design a local exhibition to complement this traveling show. There are right. photographs submitted by locals. You have antique labels from old peach grower boxes. Boxes, signs from businesses that were integral to Thomaston's history. How did you choose what to include, and what, what what kind of story were you trying to tell with that? Well, you know, we wanted to make sure that we we had um, a highlight of a little bit of everything. We wanted to include as many people as possible, and so at one time, Thomaston was the mule capital of the South. Um, you know, we were making a huge impact with the peach industry. You mentioned the peach labels. At one time, we had over 30 peach packing businesses in Thomaston at one time. Wow. Um, to our textile mill town heritage, Thomaston Mills had been in business, which was a local textile company, for over 100 years before they shut their doors down. And so we wanted to make sure that we, of course, highlighted our different industries that had been instrumental uh, for our community, that really, you know, um, you know, was the bread and butter. That's that's who you know kept everybody going. That's what paid the bills. And so we we also wanted to highlight a lot of the events that happened in our downtown area during the 1900s to the 1970s because that's really what made the community. There weren't businesses outside of downtowns. You know, you had what you had in a downtown area. And so we have so many great photos of where there would be, you know, five and 600 people at any time in downtown attending an event. 
we wanted to make sure that we touched on sports and old churches and businesses to really highlight the history, you know, just behind all of those things. And, you know, we, we really wanted to try to appeal to everyone. And we have had so many students, so many young people, um, and I'm, I'm talking, you know, from teenagers to 20-somethings to 30-somethings to say, you know, my grandparents, my parents have always talked about what used to be here or what used to be in this building or what we used to do in downtown or what they used to do here. And so being able to actually have a photo to go along with those stories has helped many of them out to, you know, to really experience and feel what their parents and grandparents felt because well, it, it was it was really a sense of family. Well, I, I also, when you talked about, you know, these pictures of the past, like how it used to look before, uh, the, the, the image that people talked about that their grandparents had. So what does it mean to present that kind of thing to contemporary audiences at a time when rural America, I think especially because of its depopulation and economic mm-hmm. troubles, is getting, you know, sort of kicked around? Right, and and I feel like, you know, uh, there's so many people moving outside of the rural communities. They want to be, you know, a lot of people want to be where it's happening. And and our overall view is that make it happen here. You know, you see what it used to be. You see what it was with a downtown that was thriving, which we are really coming back. I mean, we're really making a difference in our downtown. But, you know, just trying to encourage people, you know, this is the story that – this this town was thriving. This town, you know, was big and booming, a high po- population. And, and we're starting to see a lot more people come back to rural communities, to our rural area, and start up a business or raise a family. And so um, we really wanted to make sure to, you know, tell people that, you know, this was our story. This is this this is how things were. Uh, you know, back in the day, back in the 20s and the 30s and the 50s. That was a hard life, though. I look at all these photos, and I'm thinking, man, (laughs) those people look tired. (laughs) You know, they look so tired, and it's because they they woke up working and they went to sleep, you know, after, you know, working all day. So, Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting. We have had so many people coming through just to say, excuse me, just the stories oh, I remember this, and I remember this, and I remember, you know, I used to go there and, you know, eat, um, you know, ice creams as a kid. And so it's helping people, in my opinion, to really relive, um, you know, that pride and that sense of community in a way that maybe some of our people haven't felt in a while. Mm. Just because we were, you know, we were a mule capital. We We were teachers. We were industry. And so really... Um, one of the things that we've been working on probably over the last 20-plus years is that we were all of those things, a mill town, but we are so much more. And our people are completely resilient. They really are. And so, um, you know, it, it has really been a great experience for us. It really has. We have we, we are so thankful to the Smithsonian and Georgia Humanities for allowing us the opportunity to be able to fill out the information and for us to actually win one of the spots, one of the six communities in Georgia. Well, let's get to that. Well, I guess Lori Smith there, project coordinator for the Smithsonian's Change in Rural America exhibit in Thomaston, Georgia. Robbie Davis is also with us. He's project director for the Smithsonian's Museum on Main Street, which is kind of the umbrella organization for these traveling organizations. And this is, a, identi- it's, 
it's centered around five different ideas, identity, land, community, persistence, managing change, some of the things that Lori was just speaking to. And let's go with identity. As part of that, there's a video featuring the voices of different rural Americans reflecting on what rural means to them. Here's just a sample of that. Rural America is becoming more diverse and much more creative than it used to be. It's not just about farms and tractors and cows. It's about people, good food, culture, and the arts. So for me, rural America is dynamic and it's thriving. And hopefully it's going to be changing for the better for everyone. Diverse, dynamic, thriving, not words that a lot of people associate with the word rural. So so how, Robbie, I'll ask you first, how does Crossroads challenge these kind of stereotypes about rural communities? Well, we want to give rural communities a chance to change that narrative and say, we are dynamic. Look at the great things that are happening here. Crossroads is not a downer, not by any not by any stretch. The exhibition really takes these these ideas and tries to figure out why we've gotten to the point where we 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 see rural America in in a negative light when when you go there, when you visit, yes, some communities have suffered and continue to suffer. But then you go to other places like Thomaston, like a number of communities I visited across the country where these communities are thriving and they have very diverse very relevant communities. Um, And what we want to do is give those communities a chance to explain how they've made it work and talk about that and explore that through showing a little bit of their history and how they have kind of grabbed the things that are unique about their past and turned them into real assets for the future. But we're we're not talking about a downer experience by any stretch of the imagination. Um, the future is bright for rural America, um, but rural Americans need to have the opportunity to make that case. Um, it isn't our job to make it for them. We want to empower them. The Smithsonian team to design Crossroads to be really interactive, and there's a portion where people can submit ideas for what they would like to mm-hmm. change about their community. You know, like yeah. postcards that say, uh, if you were mayor, what would you do? Or if you could make one change for good, what would it be? Lori, I'm curious what kind of responses you've gotten so far. Um, Well, we have, I was asked this question the other day, and on the postcards, there's actually a great-looking mailbox that's attached to the exhibit where once you fill it out, you can put it in the mailbox, and then we can pin them up. We have had, I would say there's probably close to 300 of the, co- the the postcards that have been filled out, and it's been really great information. You know, one had, um, hey, Thomaston, let's get into the 21st century. We need <laughs> recycling. You know, well, we do. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of great ideas um, within the postcards, and I'm saving all of those. And, and once the exhibit is finished and we have all of them together, I'm going to present those to our city and county and our development authority you know, just to see, like, what can we do? You know, how how can we implement some of these things that people are talking about? Yeah, I guess that's the thing, right? You're, this is all about generating ideas and generating conversation. Then how do you put it to work? That's and, right. And, and I'm exactly. wondering, for you, Robbie, what are what are the sort of what's the bear, what's the marker for success? What's the measure for success in an exhibit like this? Is it the number of people come, the number of responses you get? How, how is Smithsonian looking at this? 
For us, it's the quality of the engagement that happens. Um, if if only 25 people showed up, but they had an amazing conversation with Lori about the future of Thomaston, then that we're happy with that. Um, we we want to know that um, that a host organization has a chance to really. Um, kind of upgrade visibility, um, but also engage with people in a really qualitative, you know, really good qualitative way. So we don't put a lot of markers on on all of that. Um, but I will say that we're extremely pleased when there is a response like you've had in Thomaston. Um, and I was in Thomaston on opening day. It was wild. I've never, <laughs> I, it was just absolutely amazing. And Lori deserves all the credit in the world. She has an amazing team working with her and Thank they just you. blew it. They blew the doors off the place. It was amazing. Why did you choose um, Thomaston, you know, by the way? Why was that well, one of the... Georgia Humanities chose Thomaston, and that's one of the hallmarks of our because program. Because we're the best. We, yeah, exactly. They're the best. <laughs> we don't come in and say it has to go here. That's a state-specific decision, and that's based on competitive application process. So it was Thomaston that made that case. Um, right. And, and, uh, and so, we, you know. I'm sorry. We had, ahead, you know, we had the application process, and um, we found out last July that we would be one of the six communities chosen. Well, then between the six, in Georgia, we had to give which dates we preferred, you know, which dates throughout the year's time that the exhibit would be in Georgia, which dates we would prefer. And so I don't think anybody really wanted to be the opening community because there's a lot of pressure and you're setting the stage for everybody else. But um, at the same time, we did want to be first because it's like, let's showcase our community. Let's do this. We're great. We we can do this. This is something when we're given a task, we do it 125%. And, you know, you were, you were talking about the response. Our response has been um, outstanding. Mm -hmm. We have been open for three weeks. We have seen over 800 people mm. into the exhibit, and it's not just locals. Um, there are people from, like an example, Noonan, Georgia, which is not very far from us, maybe 45 minutes. We had a couple that had lived in Noonan, Georgia their entire life. They were maybe mid-60s. They said they had never been to Thomaston, uh -huh. ever. But 45 minutes station, away. I'm sorry, what's that? 45 minutes away. Right, exactly. And so, but they said they heard our local radio station played our opening day events live on the radio. And they heard that over the radio and decided to drive over here. And so, you know, like Robbie was saying, you know, if you only had 25 people or 30 people, of course, I would not be happy with that. That, that, that was not my goal. My goal is to at least have a thousand people to come through. But my goal is just if there's just one person that comes through and they get that sense of pride or feeling, or if there's someone that comes through and says, you know what, I love this place. This is where I want to be. This is where I want to start a business. This is where I want to retire. That's, that's a game changer for us. We want that here, to happen. Here. And so um, it's been really great for us. We, we, um, and we're so lucky that our Thomaston Epson archives and our Epson Historical Society and our ancestors and our local historians have done an exceptionally great job of preserving and documenting our past. Lori, I'm going to have to stop you there because we're going to run out of time. People okay, are just okay. going to have to come and see it. How's that? Yes, okay. Well, <laughs> thank do. you, though, for having us today. Lori yes, Smith, thank you. project coordinator for the local Crossroads Change in Rural America exhibit, and Robbie Davis, thank you so much. 
Thank you. Thanks, Robbie. Classic song about small town life. Here's Dolly Parton's My Tennessee Mountain Home. We'll be back with more of On Second Thoughts. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Improv, short for improvisation, has been part of Western theater and performance since ancient Rome, circa 391 B.C., by records. In modern practice, actors step onto stage with no planning and no script, working together to make up a story right on the spot based on some form of prompt. Long associated with college theater classes and venues like Second City in Chicago, improv is really having a moment with Whose Line Is It Anyway revived on TV and improv classes for corporate staffs doing steady business. Well, Dad's Garage and Improv theater, a stalwart in Atlanta, is making a push to bring the art form to students across the state. Kevin Galise is currently artistic director of Dad's Garage and joins me in the studio. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me this morning. Well, thanks for being here. So let's go a little deeper for the uninitiated. What can someone expect when they go to see improv and performance? Well, when you go to see a live improv show, you can see a lot of different things it's it's grown a lot it's flowered and uh they don't all look the same but at the core people are going to be making things up on the fly and uh oftentimes basing it on suggestions from the audience sometimes having interactivity with the audience in other ways uh it's often comedic it doesn't have to be um but there's a definitely a distinct energy in that performance style it feels a little more fresh a little more real a little more present I think it feels a little more high wire, right? People are sort of with you going like, what are they going to do next? Yeah, and definitely thinking, oh, this could really fail at any moment. <laughs> and <laughs> do you true. as an actor think that too? <laughs> no. I, well, when I'm watching other people sometimes, <laughs> but when you're in it, you can't really be thinking about that. You, you, we train people not to think about fear and uh, failure, but instead to just explore and, and play and have fun. I'm wondering how that works for high school kids because their lives or my life when I was a high school kid was all about sort of putting the best f face forward. And now, you know, it's completely curated and you have all these social media channels saying like who you are. How do you get them to drop that guard? It's tough, you know, for high school kids. I, I remember myself also being really self-conscious and really aware of what other people thought of me when I was that age. And I, and I think that improv has probably helped me become a healthier human being. And so I try to distill the lessons that I've learned over, you know, the last few decades. Uh, and I try to give it in bite-sized form for the, for the teens. So it's stuff like, um, you know, stay present, stay in the moment. Um, it, it, it's failure re resiliency is another part of it too. If things do fail and they will, that's fine. Who cares? We're just having fun. This doesn't matter. All that matters is the moment of exploration or the moment of connection with your teammate, things of that nature, right? You focus on the positive and you kind of find a way to let go of the negative. So we try to teach these lessons in, you know, the form of improv exercises. There's a whole theory of education now that's very popular about allowing kids to fail. Are you helping them build their failure muscles? That's definitely what we're doing. So um, there's games where you're doing a warm up, and there are rules that you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do that. And then if you do the rules right, then the game can proceed. And if you don't, the game resets. Um, and in these games, we actually applaud when someone 
makes a mistake. So even though the game resets and we're starting over, when someone makes a mistake, we all cheer and applaud for that person. So this is one of the ways that we kind of subvert the traditional what's right and what's wrong kind of thinking. So what kind of skills do kids learn? Um, you know, I think there's like some more traditional skills like leadership, uh, public speaking, things like that, you know, that are a little more tangible. But then there's a lot of the soft skills, you know, like uh, failure resiliency, creativity, uh, working in a group, mm -hmm. um, positivity, uh, just self-confidence. Well, this is a big part of what you've done. Dad's Garage was formed back in 1995? That's right. Okay, so been around for a while, centered around improvisation, although you do create scripted videos and scripted shows. But a large part of the focus is on teaching improv, not just to kids, but to members of the public. Why is that important part of the mission, sort of spreading out the nature of improv? Yeah, um... We just believe in the power of improv to transform people, and that's part of our mission. And so by reaching young people, um, we're able to introduce them at an early age and get in at a time that we feel like we can really make an impact. Selfishly, we hope that we're cultivating a next generation of uh, people from Atlanta that have a stronger connection to the arts and culture scene because we think that's an important thing to build up. But also, frankly, we're just happy if we can see these people going out and being successful in their lives because of what they've learned through improv. That makes us feel good. That makes us feel like we're having an impact on our community. So now with this program, it's the new Dad's Garage High School Outreach Program aiming to equip teachers across the state with tools to teach improv. What does that look like for teachers? You know, these figures that are often authoritarian, often playing the traffic cop, often just trying to create order. Now they're disordered. <laughs> yeah, well, and also, I mean, they are under fire at all times, right? They've got way too much work and not enough resources, and they're just trying to make a difference. I mean, the kind of people they get into teaching, they're doing it because they care about kids and they care about, you know, mentoring the next generation. So we've got all these resources that we've created for free to distribute out to these teachers that are basically handmade modules and units that are aligned with the actual kind of curriculum as the state mandated curriculum. And so we've got these pre-made units that they can take their videos uh, to show the kids and their little lesson plans that they can follow to teach basic improv skills. Kevin Galise is with us. He's artistic director of Dad's Garage. They have a new program that they're doing across the state. It's called Dad's Garage High School Outreach Program, and they're teaching teachers and students about the art of improv. You learned about it as a kid. As yourself, you, you mentioned that you were when you were younger, but you were growing up in Alberta, Canada, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, growing up in Edmonton, I was in high school. I think I was one of those kids that was a little bit bored in school, and so I was finding other things to occupy my imagination. And unfortunately, that was hanging out with the bad kids and skipping school and doing all that kind of thing until um, the drama teacher told me, he said, eh, there's this... Um, improv thing uh, coming up and uh, I want you to do it. And I was like, okay, whatever. And I got totally hooked and it really changed my whole perspective on the school experience. I got a lot more into it. I got a lot more into the community and the drama, you know, community in, in my school. And 
Improv is a huge part of my life. Now, not every kid that experiences it is going to have... You're like the improv poster boy. A little bit, yeah. (laughs) I mean, not every kid is going to go on to become an artistic director of an improv theater, but I do believe that every kid that experiences it can have that kind of a positive experience, and it's... A pleasure to get to share that with more and more kids across uh, Georgia. Yeah, in my in my experience in my high school, the theater kids and those kind of grungier we called them the the buzzers oh, did yeah. not hang out with each other. No, but now improv is getting super cool. I mean, that- yeah. It's like Dungeons and Dragons is cool. Improv's cool. It's like, what kind of upside down <laughs> world is next? this? <laughs> but it spawned some really big stars. Tina Fey, Steve Carell, Will Ferrell, Stephen Colbert. Here is Colbert describing improv during a commencement speech. This is at Northwestern University in 2011. Now, there are very few rules to improv, but one of the things I was taught early on is that you are not the most important person in the scene. Everybody else is. And if everybody else is more important than you are, you will naturally pay attention to them and serve them. But the good news is, you're in the scene too. So hopefully, to them, you're the most important person and they will serve you. No one is leading. You're all following the follower, serving the servant. You cannot win improv. What do you think? Did he get it right? Yeah, of course. I mean, he's so smart and he nailed it and he puts it in a really beautiful poetic way i mean it almost sounds religious when you talk about serving the servant you know that is kind of interesting and i had a just an illuminating conversation for me with scott adsit where he talked about like it is all about reading the other person and that's a total paradigm shift for the way that we most of us function in the world Sure. Right? You know, that it's all about, like, how do I look at this moment? How am I presenting myself? Well, in a traditional school environment, kids are given a test, and they either get it right or wrong, and if you get it wrong, you're bad, and if you get it right, you're good. And there's some things that you kind of have to do like that. You know, like, I want doctors that are trained that kind of rigorously for if they're going to be treating my health. But when it comes to writers or people that are engaged in things where it's a little more fluid, you just need a critical thinking that is not so binary. And that's the type of world we try to introduce to students through improv. All right. So some big news for Dad's Garage recently. They announced Mm -hmm. that you would be stepping down as artistic director. That's true. You've been there for how long? It'll be 10 years. I I, I timed it out so that I would be stepping down after exactly 10 years. That's very crisp for an improv guy. You know, it just felt like a clean break. I thought, you know what? This is a good opportunity. Um, There were so many things along the way that happened at Dad's Garage that made me go, oh, I guess I should stay a few more years. So how does it feel to leave this thing that there was so much of your life tied up in it for so long? You know, you have mixed feelings, you know. Uh, I remember at the ensemble meeting, I said, "Uh, I'll be stepping down, you know, January 1st. And uh, there was silence in the room. And then... Zee Gillespie, a longtime ensemble member and a dear friend of mine, broke the silence and said, is there any way it could be sooner? (laughs) And, um, you know, I think we do use humor to try to uh, communicate when we're in emotional situations at Dad's. But then another person said, you know, Kev, I don't think we would have gotten through uh, some of the tough times without you. And I said, okay, meeting's over because I'm about to cry. So, you know, it's that mixture of of joy and humor, but also like a little bit of sadness and a little bit of like longing to, I wish, I wish these, this decade could have lasted forever, but it only lasted a decade. (laughs) All, All the best to you and whatever you do, we will be watching. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. 
That is Dad's Garage current artistic director, Kevin Galise. And Dad's Garage High School Outreach Program is ongoing. If you want more information, we have it on our website, gbbnews.org, or you can email ed at dadsgarage.com. Okay, so now we've got some proof, some uh, experience of improv. Joining us in the studio is Kirsten King. She's Youth Programs Director at Dad's Garage. Hello. 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 Also with us, Tyler Bile. He's TA for the Year-Round Program. Hi, Tyler. How's it going? And we have a genuine student. J.D. Rausch is with us. He's a member of the Year-Round Student Program. Hello. Hi. Thanks for being here. Yeah. When did you start doing uh, improv at Dad's Garage? Probably like 2016, I'd say. So why did you want to do improv? Uh, like the the previous year, I had done a class for a summer camp, and I found that it was a lot of fun. So we decided to find, and we found Dad's Garage, and I've just been going there ever since. So a lot of fun. Like to me, it would be mortifying. I would be really scared to do <laughs> improv. Why? Why? Why did it work for you? Uh, just because like I, I I do have a bit of anxiety, but this like helps it a lot because I just like get on the stage, I just come up with a character, and I just stick to it. You work through it. Yeah. Well, Kirsten, what is it that makes it? You've worked with kids for quite a while now. I have, yes. I've been in the game for a long time. <laughs> what makes a great improv student? Uh, well, I love seeing the kids go through their struggles. Like, some teachers don't want kids to have struggles, but for me as an educator, that's never been realistic. And so with something like improv, you can see them struggle with a game or a concept early on, or maybe even a life skill that they're learning through the improv game. And then once they've played it a couple times, had a few different partners, been able to take a note and apply that note through a program like this that does have structure and discipline, you see them come out on the other side of what I call a struggle bubble more. They're, they're braver and they feel like I've conquered that. So now what else can I conquer? Let's 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 hear some improv. Yeah. OK, so um, we love that improv is fun, but I mentioned it's also got some discipline in there. And so we're going to do a semi difficult game that is a lot of fun. We're going to do a game called ABC, okay? So I'll get a suggestion from you here in a moment to set the gentleman up. But the very first person to speak in the scene must start the very first word they say with the letter A. They can then complete their sentence, thought, or sentences, and so forth. But whenever that person stops speaking, the next person in the scene, still carrying on a well-told story and doing all their scene work, must start the first word they say with the letter B. Again, they can complete their thought or sentence sentences and so on and so forth throughout the alphabet. So once they get to the middle, boy, it'll be boy. That's a brain, brain melt. Okay, I'm going to use you to help set the scene. Okay. Where, location-wise, should this scene that's about to happen take place? Uh, uh, at, at the Olympics. Wonderful. Mm. Okay, so your location for this scene, for this ABC game scene, will be at the Olympics. Okay? We're at the Olympics. We are playing ABC. And Virginia, if you'll help me count it down from five, five four, three, two, two one. And Alexander takes the win. He's won gold in the Olympics triathlon. Back to you, Bob, from the studio. I believe that we've had an incredible event so far today. Uh, many, many great athletes out there just uh, giving their hearts for everything they got. Can't, can't wait for all of this to uh, just 
keep going because the Olympics is amazing. It's just the best thing in all ever existence. Uh, did you know that the uh, competitors, when they hang out in the Olympic Village, all they do is bowl. They have uh, many options to choose from, but uh, bowling seems to be the main source of entertainment down there. Exactly. Bowling is just the a great sport. Like it, it helps your legs, it helps your arms, and it helps your brain to get the coordination to bowl well. Firstly, uh, relaxing is pr their primary concern when they're not competing, and so I find it uh, uh, interesting that they choose such a highly intellectual sport as bowling to, uh, to, to unwind with. Good thought you got there. Uh, my personal opinion is that they bowl so they can actually not be relaxed. Because if they're not relaxed and all their muscles are worn out, that means they can perform better because they'll be more pressured because of all the adrenaline. Hmm... <laughs> Interesting point you bring up there. Uh, I don't really know uh, uh, much about adrenaline. Uh, sitting behind this desk uh, is quite the rush for me, and I wouldn't uh, want to be out there competing with all those crazy athletes. I personally am completely opposed to that opinion. <laughs> now, just just why is that for you? Because uh, back in your early days, you were an Olympic-level skater, and uh, I, I think that uh, you'd want to bring that skill further on and be able to uh, pr further your line of education. Carlos... <laughs> How did you know my name started with the That was Kirsten King, Youth Programs Director at Dad's Garage. Also, Tanner Bile, he's a TA for the year-round program that teaches improv to the community to people like J.D. Roush. He's a member of the year-round student program. You can find more on Dad's Garage High School Outreach Program at gpbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Krausman, Jessica Lowell, and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Our theme song is by Alex Crispin and Marshall Ruffin. I'm Virginia Prescott, back tomorrow at 9 or anytime with the On Second Thought podcast, all from GPB. GPB.